Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Now, our first hour, we typically answer your questions around media and all things digital production. And our second hour is something that we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, we'll be speaking with Tim Moore from View Technologies, and he'll discuss what's happening in the virtual production space and how their startup has been able to pivot to grow their virtual production network. So you want to stay tuned and get your questions ready, both for the first hour and the second hour. And speaking of questions, Bill, let's get this party started. Absolutely, Liberty. First one comes from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. And Kenny asks, some Office Hours panelists own the 499 US dollar M1 or M2 Mac Mini. Uh, eight gigs of RAM with 256 gig solid straight state drive. What are your video uses for a single computer? And are some common video tasks not suitable for this configuration? Go ahead, Jeffrey. So I have my M1. Uh, I have the M1 downstairs. I have the M2, which is right here. And uh, basic, basic tasks. I, I don't, you know, you don't put too much onto the computer because then you find out that you're going to run out of RAM. You're going to run out of space easily, really quick. But downstairs, basically, all of my video production technically comes up to this computer up here, and then it goes down to the other computer uh, when I'm in the studio. That way, I don't have to worry about. I have a whole bunch of fan noises and, and other sounds. I just have that one device going in there. Uh, and then when I take it on the road, it's perfect for doing any type of video editing. But once again, I got to clean out what I'm doing on down in the basement and then load up what I want uh, when I do it in remote production. Because once again, you just got a very limited amount of RAM, little limited amount of hard drive. So you want to keep it as clean as possible. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how big the hard drive is that you put there. Um, you can push these, I found that you can push the minis pretty hard. The only place that I've had a RAM issue has been with Resolve and photo, some photogrammetry stuff that I've done. So opening up stuff in Final Cut hasn't been an issue at all. Um, opening things in motion, I haven't had any, I haven't seen any slowdown. It's been putting really, really heavy files into it. So it, it's done a pretty good job. And I have, I buy a lot of the eight gig versions. Um, a reminder that we can do eight 1080p outs um, from uh, one M1 mini. Uh, the M2 definitely, um, even even easy, even even more easily, uh, we, you know, with an external uh, SDI output. So it, it's it's a pretty beefy machine for what it is. Um, and again, haven't really hit the RAM thing very often on, except for doing things that would be hard on most computers, um, you know, to to make that work. So it's they're they're very very good at even at even at four ninety nine or five ninety nine. And I've used it similar to Jeffrey. It was it's a streaming machine, but also primarily for post production. So editing, um, Adobe and whatnot, just for the the power and the ease of use between um, between software, like between applications, so that it just it doesn't slow down. So uh, just like Jeffrey and Alexander. Yeah, I mean, I, for audio and video editing, I, I don't like to use computers with less than 16 gigs, but I'm just curious specifically with Resolve, where exactly would you see a performance problem? Do you actually see, does the application become non-responsive when you're trying to process something specifically? Yeah, it, it was, um, it, it, it actually had a running out of RAM. <laughs> like I got a message that said I'm running out of RAM, but I was, these were, I mean, just to put it in perspective, these are not like little H.264 files or even ProRes files. These were black magic raw files, four layers of them, 6K, you know, opening them up in there. And 
Um, so it was, and even when I opened them in a Mac studio with an external drive, it still wasn't, it was still chunky, you know, so it was not, it, you know, when I put it on the internal drive on the Mac studio, then everything played fine, you know, but, but it was, uh, so, so I think that it was, a, these are, these are files that would have made any computer I had previously chunk a little bit. Um, but they, and then with the, again, with the photogrammetry, with Metashape, you can get to a point where it just says, I don't have enough RAM. You know, like it, it just, it just caps out. But these are, to put it in perspective, it's 192 raw files being, it's a, it's a pretty heavy, heavy machine. I mean, heavy uh, calculation, so. Bill? Yeah, that's it. You have to calculate the load you're likely to put on the device and what its purpose is. When I was starting out, you know, the fact that you could get any computer, particularly a powerful one, was pretty unheard of. Now they're so ubiquitous. I just bought uh, a new MacBook Air M2 for my voice booth. Uh, the Air, because it doesn't have any fans, so it's perfect for that application. But I did not have to stuff a lot of configuration into it because all I'm going to be doing basically in there is recording voiceover. Maybe I'll do Zoom occasionally for clients who want to direct a session, but that's it. And it's going to sit there the rest of the time waiting for it to make me the money to pay for its purchase through a very niche use. And that's all it was there for. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, when I first bought uh, the M1 Mac Mini, when it first came out, the base model, I just walked to my local Best Buy and saw it sitting there. And I was like, ooh, I got to get one of those to try st some stuff out. And uh, I wound up just loving it because it was so fast and wound up using it in production. A, a lot of it is just an NDI video monitor and routing stuff around. Uh, right now, below this, my prompter is uh, our uh, Mukana stuff. But yeah, I was in Costco uh, just this weekend and those M1s are 669 was their previous price. And at the register, they're 499 for the M1s. And then uh, if you're an educator or have kids that are being educated, you can get them in the Apple Education Store. Now the M2 for 499 What I wouldn't run, uh, I tried banging uh, on DaVinci Resolve and I was not a pleased I uh, was not a happy camper uh, due to the RAM. So if I'm going to buy another one, it's going to have the 16 gigs of RAM and most likely the 10 gig uh, Ethernet port as well. And Jeffrey? Yeah, I, I just wanted to uh, double down. I, I, I do love the M1. It's perfect. Like I said, with the road machine, it, it becomes a second machine. So you can take your laptop, you can connect up to it, you can do all the work from the M1 and then disconnect it, use your laptop for other things. So that's what I really love about it. But uh, one tip, if you're using any Adobe product and you're using the Frame IO, make sure that you turn off the cache because it starts to download everything onto the onto the computer. That's where you start running out of resources. And I have a feeling Resolve's got something very similar to that. And Alex? So, so guy, students can buy with the with that student um, discount as well? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the, um, yeah the, the big thing is, is that the way we've used Mac Minis in the past is, I mean, I've owned tens and tens of like 30, 40 Mac Minis. And we use them as glue. And at four ninety nine, five ninety nine, we use them for scopes. We use them for processing things, managing. And I've been using them since they were released that way, as as key servers, as everything else. And the fact that these M ones and M twos can can do so much now is is is. You're muted. You know, starting to build up some render nodes. You know, for some of my apps that I just sit over somewhere and just have them. You know, sending out renders from Cinema four D or other things uh, to them. Um, so anyway, it's it's it. You want there's a huge advantage of having lots of little computers as to as opposed to just one um, one big computer. And guy, 
Yeah, one of the videos I was watching uh, last week on the M1 versus M2 is be aware of the disk speed. There's some interesting videos on YouTube that the M1 is way faster on the disk speed, and they actually open it up and they show you the chip that's in there. So if you go to uh, an M2 with a bigger drive like the 512, uh, you might want to double check if it's faster because uh, I'm pretty sure that that was the case was that the 256 was like uh, super slow, like 700 uh, megabytes a second versus the previous generation was 1200. So if that's if disk performance is important to you, then uh, take a look at uh, uh, getting the bigger hard drive on a custom build or just buy, buying the, the model that already come the next step up from the 599 version. Next question. Douglas Carmichael in next with what was your favorite Super Bowl halftime show production element? Nigel? So I thought they did a very good job with the raising and lowering of the platforms. I, I don't know how they, they managed. I'm sure they got it right. But uh, with an open dome station, uh, uh, stadium, getting that work I thought was very, very impressive. I, I really liked that. I, I have to admit I only recognized one of the songs, but I'm very old. <laughs> Yes, uh, the amazing. That was a, a good look, Courtney. Yeah, I agree. The, uh, the the flying platforms and everybody was safetyed off, which you could see. Um, and and how they did a sky cam shot. I don't know how they flew the sky cam in there with all those cables going crisscrossing across the stadium for those flying stages. Uh, they did a, a shot through the crisscrossed wires halfway up above the stage and I don't know if it was a drone shot or if they especially arranged one particular passage and combined it with a zoom but it was a pretty amazing and I also like the uh, <clears throat> the 360 the uh, cam with a gimbal on the end of it so that they can go from high mode to low mode and they flipped you over in the middle of a shot uh, with the steady cam that was a pretty amazing shot although I do think she lip synced about 90% of that uh, whole sequence and Jason yeah, um, I, I don't think I've ever seen a gimbal roll on national television. I mean, never. Seriously, never. Um, the camera work was incredible. The camera, the, the cinematography was great. What really struck me was, um, aside from the spatial audio, was the um, the white uniforms and the way that they were lighting them the whole time. And they just completely, vividly changed them with strobes, with blue, with red, and it was gorgeous. John? My favorite production element was they had about a hundred people after the after the halftime show filling in the divots like you do in when you go golfing. <laughs> and did you see everybody slipping on the on the turf? They had to, they had a big problem with the turf. Alex, yeah, I I thought it was such a classic. Uh, it, it, it was perfect for an as an Apple show because it was like we're going to do something that looks really simple, and but but if you watch, it's going to be really complicated. <laughs> So when I saw it, I was like, wow, that they really didn't build very much for this. And as it kept on going, I think overall, I was just amazed that, they, again, what was mentioned before, there were some camera shots that you were like, I don't know how they're doing that, you know? And, um, and so it's, it was, it was very uh, hidden, hidden uh, tech rather than, you know, pomp, you know, all the craziness. It was still crazy, I'm sure, but there was something about it being very simple, but very hard at the same time. You actually articulated what a lot of people who were commenting on the halftime show is like, oh, you know, it was trash or it was not being impressed with it because right. you're used to all these different guest speakers. I'm sorry, not guest speakers, artists. Yeah. But you articulated well. It's like the, the camera work, the lighting and all of those those elements that came into play. Yeah. Guy? 
Yeah, I'm just blown away by the amount of replay. You guys got to look at what's going on behind the scenes there. It's, it's incredible because you think of it, they got 30 channels plus of replay. And after every big play, they're winding back four or five of them. So you look at all those angles and you look at um, the operators in the truck. I was lo- lucky enough to go in the actual Game Creek truck when it was here in Seattle that they used on the Super Bowl. And seeing that layout, it's mind-blowing how much work that that is and how much data is being pumped through. It is incredible. So if you get chance to rewatch some of that look at all the various angles because it's like who has it who has a shot and there was one uh play with it that they said uh, uh when it was called to um to verify the play of the guy was uh two feet or three feet i think was the was the call and they were like oh we finally found the angle and they bubbled it up and that was that was what changed the the uh, call so it's pretty amazing what they can do on the field and through comms mitchell yeah, the flying Rihanna was uh, was very impressive. Uh, I was told on After Hours that it was the Foy brothers who rigged that uh, gag. Uh, nicely done. And I think they need to add a changing of the cleats as part of the halftime exercise. And what she did really well, in addition to everything that has been shared, is she actually brought a lot of the Savage Fenty elements to it. The camera work is a lot of what we saw. And just going into the comments, Brody um, shares, one of the regular panelists knows the firm that handled the flying platforms. He said they also produced many flying elements in Broadway theaters. So seeing how those worlds um, came together last night during the halftime show. It's it's funny you you realize there's probably a company that just flies people like oh yeah we fly we do we do flying pipe but you know like what do you do I, I do flying platforms that's what I do right <laughs> niching down yeah that, exactly they did that well <laughs> and Courtney yeah nobody mentioned the choreography I thought the costume design for all the, the hundreds of dancers and the synchronization between the dancers was almost perfect uh, and I don't know they may have had to have play out uh, you know. Siri arranged speakers so that all the uh, I don't think they had in-ear monitors for all the dancers so that they could all stay in sync with each other it was pretty amazing when they're he- when you're hearing delayed music echoing around that stadium it's kind of hard to stay in sync with the beat and um, uh, one other thing it was very carefully rehearsed the cutting uh, obviously the coverage was well well rehearsed because you 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 had to look very carefully to see the dancers hook up the safety lines to the dancers that were on the platforms when they went on and off the platforms. And when they would dismount, they'd cut to the exterior of the uh, stadium with the fireworks going off, and they'd cut back, and they're off the platforms. So they covered all the technical, they hid all the technical issues that they had to deal with in something that dangerous um, uh, very well. You had to look very closely. It was only visible in a couple of frames to see them where the the dancers, the stagehands, and all the Steadicam operators were dressed in the same uh, white outfits as the dancers, so they blended in. Oh, nice. I didn't see that part. So we're discussing the Rihanna halftime show at the Super Bowl yesterday, as someone um, shared in the comments, and doing this all while being safe. I think you mentioned that, Courtney, earlier, being safe, because she is also pregnant and doing the entire show. So kudos to the entire team that put that together. Next question. John, uh, looks like Born Trigger uh, says, anyone have any thoughts on this new venue where you two will perform? It's the MSG Sphere, Madison Square Garden Sphere. Uh, 16K screen, 164K speakers. P.S. We might want to arrange a meetup, and that's in Las Vegas. Alex? Do we know if that's operational yet? Is it? Is it? I know that it's We were talking about yet. a pre-show. I don't think it you is. Think I think it's, it's still in construction. When it is, we should talk to some folks there and see if we can't uh, um, go 
go visit it. <laughs> I, I, I have been to a theater with a couple more speakers and a little bit higher res screen, and it's it's definitely worth checking out. <laughs> so so anyway, um, so uh, the um, but I but I think uh, it 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 looks really really like an, a great experience. This is. I think where, you know, a lot of this projection and everything else has to go, um, I don't know if you need a band down there to do it. I think that they're building it for a band, but I think, you know, just doing events that are in that kind of sphere, being able to have something that is like, uh, that's immersive, gives people a reason and thinking about the content for that, um, you know, a planetarium without the big thing up the center, you know, and thinking about how to design and create something for that, I think would be at that scale would be really fun. Nigel? I'm sure Mr. Pareto will give me more information, but the last thing I heard was they had hoped it would open for the F1 race in November, but they don't think they're going to make that date. They think they'll be able to project on the outside, but actually inside won't be ready till next year. I know that MSG is starting to sell a few assets to raise enough money to finish this project. The other thing I heard, which I thought was pretty interesting, was uh, because of the inside, particularly in how different it was, bands touring through are going to have to rethink how they perform with inside and it will actually give them an opportunity to do things they couldn't do on a normal stage but that's going to make some of the touring bands have to rethink about the cost and implications of that courtney and if they don't run out of money before they get the las vegas one open there's one plan for london as well in downtown london they've been arguing over the zoning and the position of it with the um that other big stadium that's there next to the big eye. Uh, uh, I don't know if they've even started construction yet, so that's ahead of them as well. And I can't imagine what it would be like to phase a line uh, 164,000 speakers. I'm, you know, and John. Uh, I'm born and raised in Vegas, and uh, this thing's going up. And it's funny now when you drive by it, there's green, and they're putting the LEDs on the top, and they're programming everything and so it's it's coming along i i've heard they're they're running into some some uh challenges and there were some issues with you too i don't know if that got fully resolved the other the other thing is it's it's not on the strip it's behind the venetian across the street from the wind so it's not in the greatest location it's good for f1 because the f1 cars are going to go right by it but uh we'll see next question Next one comes to us from Alexander Knight here on the panel from Vancouver, British Columbia. How do I add borders around the boxes in my super source on an ATEM? The border option under the art tab is not accessible. Alexander, do you want to put some more context on that before Alex responds? Well, it's it's just weird. I've seen people, I know people can do it, but I don't know if they're, they're using um, mix effect or if they're just adding the graphics in and importing them in. So as far as I can see natively, I, I don't see a way to do it because I can't select the, the border option. Alex? Yeah, I thought that I, I think that I, I guess my understanding was that the border was not in the, it was in the main option, not in the, and I'm trying to find it right now. Um, I don't know why my, um, the, my understanding for the super source was that it was a, it was part of the main option, not part of the art option. But you're seeing it in the border, and you have. Well, a, so you if have, I go to the art tab now in super source, there, if you scroll down, you can see there's a border area there, but it's completely grayed out. You can't select it. Yeah, I'm looking at the. Uh, oh, I see. Because yeah, it's not there, and then you go into the art tab and. Um, while we're pulling oh, yeah. that, yeah, Mitchell, we'll have to come did back. you have Look, a... Yeah, go, go ahead, Mitchell. 
I was going to say they also I have a number of different um, uh, tutorials how to use Photoshop to create frames that you can then key, uh, but you can't you know can't adjust it. It just must be adjusted to the Photoshop frame. Yeah, yeah. I think that the the issue there is that you um, uh, with Photoshop, you know, when when you're using it, the and I have to admit that <laughs> I'm looking at the A10 one. Uh, Alex, are you using uh, the Mix Effect Pro or are you just using the regular? I'm not A10 using Mix Effect at all. I don't have it. I have to admit that I don't know how to use the SuperSource in in ATEM anymore. So any updates to to the SuperSource? Why well, I'm I'm kind of trying to go through the ATEM and I realize why does this not look normal? It's because I think almost everybody I know that uses SuperSources now uses MixEffect Pro, um, and it's the reason is because the SuperSources, in my opinion, on an ATEM are almost unusable in the core software. Like maybe not completely unusable, but very very close. And it, and I can promise you that if you get mix if you get MixEffect Pro. You'll never look back at, you know, um, MixFact Pro has a lot of tools that I don't use, but the one that almost all of us use for it is the SuperSource tools. And the ability to transition from one to the other to the other to the other, be able to seamlessly move things around and adjust them is so much better than <clears throat> the ATEM. I wouldn't, there, I wouldn't bother. I mean, the software is really great for the ATEM software. The, the SuperSources were inaccessible, almost completely inaccessible before MixEffect Pro existed. Um, you know, we, we use them, but it was always like, oh, do we have to? <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, do we have to turn these on? It was a huge oversight because it was one of the most powerful parts of the switcher that that uh, Blackmagic completely uh, ignored or whatever. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, what happened there, but it just was not, not ever developed. Uh, MixEffect Pro makes it like suddenly a great, I mean, I've run, I have run shows a hundred percent of the show in front of thirty thousand people watching, just tapping on an iPad, going between <laughs> super sources on Effect Row. So it's a it's a really great app. And Alexander, you might want to check out some of the comments in the chat, and then also Sky, because when they did Mad in the Kitchen, wow, now almost two years ago, um, they had Square Super Sources, so maybe they might be able to have a solve. So again, speak to Sky to see how they were able to do that, um, because at that time, I don't know that Mix Effects, um, Mix Effect was even on on the Office Hours I, radar. I don't think it was, but it was. Yeah. Uh, it's super painful. Like as soon as you, I just promise that there's, there's very few things that will just say, oh, you should just go get, but you really should. Like it's not worth the time. Like it's not worth the time to learn how to use a super source inside of the ATEM software. It's, it's, there's no, you like, you'll be super frustrated when you get MixEffect Pro and realize how much time you poured into a hole. Yeah. And Mitchell Plus One's that <laughs> next question. Next one comes from Guy Cochran, uh, Saddle, Washington. What do you think of WebEx NDI? Alex? Uh, it it, it kind of looks like what what uh, Zoom was doing before before Liminal showed up. <laughs> like, like it looks like they're they're you know as as a process of catching up, they're they're um, they're starting to get there. Um, they're, they're, you know, I think it points to everyone understands that building shows outside of the app, the native app, is going to be important. So even WebEx can 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 add, have new tricks, uh, but so far the the implementation looks like kind of the Zoom Rooms implementation of of NDI. Um, so nothing nothing major yet, but I think that it should be a wake up call for um, you know both Teams and, and Zoom to know that you know everybody's going to go down this path, and so it's just a matter of time. Next question. 
John Filer in uh, Greenfield, Massachusetts, says older model stream decks are on sale on Amazon, including the 32-button XL for only $199 U.S. Who has tried the new one with dials? Nigel. Yes, I have the 32, the 15, and the plus. The 32 is by far the best. Uh, I use that most regularly. The 15 sits on, on another machine Um which is just useful for for quick tapping. I did get the new one. I have to tell you, I think the buttons are a little noisier. They're much bigger. I think they're a little noisier. Um, there's only uh, eight on the main, on the panel at any mine, and which is really very few, particularly when you're used to being able to operate the 32 without looking at it. And I, to be honest with you, I have found fairly little use for the dials yet. I'm hoping that more applications will come through. So are you saying that the 32, you still use that more than the new one? Oh, I do. So I have two Macs in my setup, and I, I have one on the left and one on the right. The 32 sits on the left, and the, the 16 sits on the, uh, whatever is it, 15 sits on the right. And uh, they the, the, the one on the left is use companion, and that's with mix effect and all of that stuff. The one on the right is much more day-to-day uh, task and routines. It's how I set up for office hours with a single button press. And those are great. I've got this new one. It was a birthday present. It's really only got eight buttons on it. And the moment you have to start going to multiple screen, screens, I find that really slows you down. And eight is very few buttons. And they're mm-hmm. noisy. John? I have to tell you an interesting story. I don't know how long ago was it, Alex? Was it two years ago where somebody found it, an amazing deal on Stream Deck? Might have been Jeffrey. I'm actually. still waiting for that. I'm still waiting for that Stream <laughs> so Deck. We yeah. found the 32 button for like forty nine dollars. It was like ninety nine. It. it was ninety nine dollars. Whatever I think. it was, yeah. and it was all a big fraud. So be careful. It was. It was. I'm still. I never. It. It was someone who had. It was like a genius move uh, of scam where. It, they got it into a state in Amazon where you can, there's nowhere to process it. There's nowhere to say I didn't get it. There's nowhere to say, you know, like there was no good place. You'd have to like call Amazon and try to explain to them. And I never did. So it's still, I'm still waiting for, for it to show up. Um, but but it was, uh, it was a, a genius scam because it said it's, it's on its way. And, but then when it's on its way, there's a state there that Amazon can't do anything with, you know, and put a lot of people in that state. Next question. Next one comes to us from Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia. If Blackmagic put a more powerful processor into a future ATEM Mini, what would you want to see them do with it? Courtney? Yeah, I'd like to see them add SuperSource to the ATEM Mini Pro. And I'd also like to see them, unfortunately, it's going to compete with another one of their products, the HyperDeck. I'd like to see them put more memory for the media players and add another media player. So if they had two media players in the Mini Pro, and they added maybe just eight gigs of uh, flash memory storage on board so that you could store media clips and it could play out media clips from the media player. That would be uh, key, uh, would be very helpful to me. I like that flash drive idea. Mitchell? I agree with Courtney. I think a, a mini hyperdeck inside of it would be wonderful, even if it's just five seconds. And Alex? I'd love to have another super source. <laughs> we were just talking about that. I mean, it's... It is super useful to have two super sources um, available because you can build bigger grids. I mean, in fact, if I was going to, the, the thing that, that is when you have Mix Effect Pro, again, and I, I don't get anything from Adam by talking about Mix Effect Pro, by the way, like it's just, it's just when you have it, it's a lot easier uh, to do a lot of things and you suddenly want to do a bunch of other things, you know, with that. I would agree that I would love to see a large, I would love to see a larger um, cache so that we could run full sweepers. I mean, that's the big thing is, is I need, 
basically at 1080p, I really, you know, I'm hoping I would love to get 3,600 frames and I would love to have two, three or four of those, um, you know, in the, in the system so that I can have, you know, good sweepers and, and be able to play small, small elements and then be able to do it. Um, better yet, I would love for it to have some kind of MVME. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. I'd love to have an MVME slot in the bottom that I could just push in there and then make, put a hype, essentially put a hyperdeck into the ATEM, you know, so that I, you know, I can just put a four terabyte, you know, um, uh, MVME into the bottom of it just, and they don't buy it. I have to buy it, but I, but they just put a slot in there for storage and then I could just store stuff there. And I think that that would be, um, that'd be a lot of fun. Like it would turn that thing into a, into, into a beast. And into a workhorse. Yeah. John? Boy, the guys hit, hit most of it. I, I would like to see 4K, SDI, and HDMI both on the on the thing, but have not having a media player. A media player, that means video and pictures, black magic together. It's just crazy. Great definition there. Alexander? Yeah, I think all those points are excellent. One of the things that I'm very curious about, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, is a bit of a def deficit when when I look at a lot of the Roland switches out there. Roland will put scalers on every single input. I don't understand why Blackmagic doesn't do that. It does. All the do. All, okay, for all the ATEMs, all the ATEM, all the all the ones that are built that are black. The gray ones are don't have scalers, but all the Every ATM that's built that has a black um, case has a scaler on, on every input. And then in the comments, Jesse says, simpler macro editing plus a thousand on that one. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. And he says, Alex, you mentioned the Mac Mini being useful as glue. Could the M2 Pro Mac Minis, I'm getting mine today, and he's got 32 gigabytes of RAM, 4 terabyte SSD, a 12-core CPU, and a 19-core GPU, be enough to serve as a main audio workstation, for example. Mitchell? Douglas, nothing to worry about. You were in a great shape with that system. You could even get by with an M1 uh, to do audio work with uh, Logic. So not to sweat any details. You're well covered. Alexander? Yeah, I've got nothing to add to that. Uh, Mitchell, hit it. On the nose, Jeffrey? The bigger issue is when you start getting into multi-channels, you get 16 channels, you get 32 channels in there, and you're using a whole bunch of plugins to compress, to EQ, to all that other stuff. And so the bigger, the better. And the best part is in the last year, Mac has introduced the GPU to audio, uh, I don't know if it's a plugin or whatever it is, uh, where you can actually use the GPU to actually uh, bring or help along whatever you're doing. So that that's it's it's a very beefy computer. It'll work really well yeah, unless you're doing like 5000 channels and doing a whole bunch of plugins for it. And Alex. Yeah, my experience from working in Logic is that I mean even on a very small machine it it, it does a really good job. <laughs> like it's it's you know even on a little M1 uh, I think this is a much you have a much beefier M1. I think that you're going to find that something like especially things you just want to look at what's been optimized and what hasn't been optimized. So uh, I doubt that I think there is an M1 version of Pro Tools I'd probably be very careful uh, Pro Tools tends to take a little time to to grow into a new a new piece of hardware, um, and so I'd, I'd be careful with that. But it it, it might be there. The, I think that you're probably going to find that Logic and some of the other ones are going to work. They're really written to the stack, and so I think that it's it's going to be. Um, I think that you'll find that something like Logic will probably run. I, I bet you. 
couple hundred channels <laughs> pretty, pretty well. So, um, by the way, I, I, this is only tangentially connected, but if you're, if you're playing with audio workstations, um, I don't remember, remember, uh, Owl City, the, the band Owl City had a little, they had a single called Fireflies. And, um, the guy, I guess I, I thought Owl City was like a band. It's, it's a guy, <laughs> like it's a guy in Minnesota. Anyway, so, um, he put up a couple days ago in Logic. Uh, I, I have a tendency to watch lots of, lots of Logic, um, behind the scenes. So, um, so anyway, he put up this great breakdown of Fireflies. Like I was up in the middle of the night, I couldn't sleep, I wrote the song and he, and he just breaks it all down. But if, I think that it's really important to watch these if you can find them on YouTube. And I would just do a search for Logic, Fireflies, Owl City. Um, and, and I would, um, you know, look for that cause it's a great 15 minutes. I think it was, you know, like uh, of him breaking down. Well, then I did this and I did this. And he actually pointed out that, um, there's a chord that was wrong. And he just said, I only noticed it a couple years ago. <laughs> like, like, you know, someone pointed it out a couple years ago or something like that. So uh, I would highly recommend it if you're into logic and you're, and you're looking at, at music getting put together. And these are the kind of answers that you get when we don't have a lot of questions. So we just, we just kind of stretch. Stretch, yes. And speaking of questions, we do have some space for a few more of your questions before we get to the top of the hour with Tim Moore and View Technologies. Next question. Next one comes to us from Dory Miles in Lake Zurich. Uh, all of my email goes to Comcast.net. I have not found any way to change that or even forward the email. Does that mean they own me? Jason? They don't own you, but they ha do have an exceptional marketing profile that is just perfectly dialed in exactly for everything that um, everything that you do and see on the Internet. Um there is a way around this, but really, you should just one by one start getting away from, from Comcast. Um, you can also import your Comcast email through Gmail. But again, if you don't pay for a service, you are the product, and that includes a free Gmail account. Alex? Yeah. The hard part is, is that there's never really any way to to seamlessly get rid of your email. So there is a, you're, you'll people will send you emails there forever, and you have to decide who's important and who's not, and make sure that they they get the new email. The easiest way to do it, you can try to tell people that that you, you should use a new email, but the easiest thing to do is just start create a new Gmail account or an, or or whatever you want to use, and then just start sending everybody emails that way and start signing up for things that way and. And when you can go back and turn those things off, you'll probably leave your Comcast on, but over time it will become less and less important. Um, but you'll you know check it every once in a while to make sure that there's you know. And and what I would recommend is you know setting up filters um, if you can. Um, and and you can do with any of these accounts. You can bring them in depends on what you have. But like with Apple Mail, I just have all my accounts go into my Apple Mail, so I've got this long list of different emails that they, that someone could send me an email by, and they all go into the same place. And then I, in there I can set up. E filters to filter out all this junk and what you can do there is that way if something pops up in your comcast but then just respond to it in your, in your new email people just tend to ignore you telling them i have found that people tend to ignore you telling them you have a new email it's just easier to send them the email send start sending emails from the email you want to use and it just slowly winds its way out um, but i still have emails i mean i still have people sending me emails on things that are um you know decades old courtney uh, a good idea is sometimes to register your own domain. And uh, if you go to a domain registrar, and, you know, register a domain that you're going to keep forever and license. You're going to have to pay for it annually. But almost all of them come with uh, free email, you know, five, five or so email boxes. And then you just have everything sent to that email address, and you can forward it to your ISP, your, to your uh, uh, 
what was it, Comcast uh, uh, email address. So you can forward all of the mail that comes to your domain to Comcast if Comcast only lets you use their mail servers on their I, that ISP. So outwardly, you're only exposing your, your own domain name, your own domain mail. And that way you can keep it and move from ISP to ISP and still keep the same email address across multiple ISP. And John? I've been on the internet since 1988 when you could do the whole internet in a weekend. And so my suggestion for email is to register your name, like mine, John, my name, my email is John Apreto, and that has sustained 30 years and it never changes. Your job changes, et cetera, but your name is the best thing to do. Exactly what Courtney just said. Register your own domain, use email. I'm not a fan of Outlook. I'm not a fan of Apple Mail because the databases build up over time so large that it become really cumbersome. And so all of my emails are either on Gmail or now Fastmail. I'm having really good luck on Fastmail. What is it you like about Fastmail? It's uh, it's super feature rich and it's fast. I haven't had any problem. It's super affordable and it, they've got almost all the same features you can do in Gmail. Okay, thank you. Next question. Robert Barrow in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania says, Good morning, all. My wife has been using my older Tactile Pro 4 keyboard, but she's experiencing wrist and hand pain due to the switches they use for the keys. Does anyone have any recommendations for a quality keyboard that has softer keys? Thanks. Mitchell? I do. The Apple keyboard. Very soft, very easy to use. And in comparison, my IBM, which is behind me, Clickety-clack, and that's probably the problem you have. And if you don't like either of those suggestions, uh, go to Logitech. They have a ton of keyboards there. And Alex? Yeah, I, I'm on the same path of trying to find one. Um, I got one of the Logitech ones thinking it would be, you know, I was asking for a quiet one on Twitter. <laughs> so the, uh, the Logitech was the one that I, I just ordered. Um, I'm also going to, we'll, we'll probably talk about this more. I'm going to order a Nufi, uh, N-U-P-H-Y. Um, it's my EBS operator a couple shows ago was using one and I asked her what she was using because I'd never seen that keyboard before. And she's like, oh, I love this keyboard. And so a new fee is another one that I'm, um, you know, taking a look at. And I'll be probably getting a couple other ones just to try to figure it out because I'm trying to do the same thing where I'm trying to find something that is really, really quiet. And I have not been successful yet. Um, but uh, but I will say that the Logitech, and I'm trying to come up with the, um, with the exact one, but the Logitech one, what I would say is if I, here's the, the advantage of it, this is the, I have the, I got the Logitech MX mechanical wireless performance keyboard tactile quiet switches, and they are not as quiet as the Apple keyboard. So I, I, I what I have right now is an Apple keyboard, and I wanted to find something that's quieter um, and better, and it's not. <laughs> so, so the keys feel better than the Apple keyboard. I have a wired Apple keyboard. Um, so the keys feel better, but the, um, but the, uh, in the, in the Logitech, but they're not as quiet as the Apple keyboard to, to type on. Um, the other problem that I have is that my Apple wired keyboard, I have my, my trackball goes into my keyboard and then into a, into a KVM. The, for whatever reason, the KVM doesn't support two inputs, <laughs> like two things to go into it. And when I plug in, um, when I try to plug my, you know, when I, the, the wireless one only has one USB out to go into the KVM. So I have a slightly different need, which is that I have to have something, I can't be wireless. It has to be wired into a KVM to control all the computers. And so in that environment, um, I haven't found the, the Logitech's probably going to go home because mostly because I can't connect it to that. Um, but uh, but I, it's a better keyboard. I will say that it feels better um, than the Mac keyboard, but it's not as quiet. 
And Mitchell? I have the also have the wired uh, Apple keyboard. Um, and by the way, Apple doesn't make wired keyboards anymore. They're all Bluetooth uh, connected. Um, you can buy them used or refurbished from or, OWC. Or you keep them like, like they're gold. <laughs> or that. There is that. But those ones typically, because I do, I still have that. And now that you said that, I didn't even put the two and two together. Yeah, but it makes so much noise. That's the only thing. Um, and just coming in from the comments, Chris says, I'm a little, the Logitech MX Keys Advanced Wireless a new Illuminated Keyboard. That's his uh, recommendation. Next question. Tobias Moss in Minneapolis, Minnesota says tips on getting the most value from a real live human personal assistance. Go ahead, Nigel. So I think you're going to get the most use out your personal assistant when they are doing things that you could do, but it's better use of the time for them to do it. So for me, it's managing calendar, it's working expenses, it's being the person I can delegate a reorganization, organization of events or meetings to. Uh, I could do all of those things, but it's better use of my time if they do them. Uh, a few tips, though, I would tell you. Number one, you've got to make sure whoever you have doesn't speak for you. You've got to be clear that they are your assistant, they are not you. Because people will, particularly in a large organization, if you're not careful, confuse those two things. You have to constantly communicate with that person. You've really got to make sure you have a flow. We have a regular meeting twice a week just to check on things. And the other thing I always think let them know what you like and what you don't like. Don't make them guess it. If you don't like certain things in the way that meetings are organized or your expenses are done or something, you've got to communicate that because otherwise you're going to get frustrated. They can't read your mind. And following up on what Nigel said, and I'm reading real live as in like also like a person, a physical person that can possibly run errands for you. Because I remember a year or two ago, something happened with uh, my Black Magic, my 4K, and it was like dead on arrival and I was traveling. So to have someone that I could physically like ship it to, they went into the store to be able to do that. So I think a physical task, like if there's things that need to be mailed out and things that they, those types of activities that they can do for you. I highly recommend reading the four hour work week because in that book, Tim Ferriss um, breaks down just when you're getting started, like one, how to source a virtual or an assistant and how to actually manage them. As Nigel shared, just they're really learning you to be able to do some of those tasks and so that you can operate in your genius zone, which whether it be production or sales, like you can really focus on those high touch activities activities that you're doing. And then that way they can handle those other ones to free up your time. So having a clear list of their activities or what they need to do and having them check in once those are accomplished. It's not micromanaging. It's really being clear that things have been checked off. I find it also helpful to have a sync day or a sync time. So if we have a sync meeting on Tuesdays, um, once we've got that. It might not be that we necessarily have a call, but maybe it's like Thursday, there's a email communication that, hey, here's where I am. Here's what I need help with. I'm still waiting on you for those tasks because again, you're out there in your genius zone and their whole job is to help alleviate things that are on your plate. So that's what I've found helpful in having an, um, a live assistant. Alex. Yeah, the temptation will be at the beginning is to take things back because they didn't do it the way you would have done it. 
and you need to communicate what's missing. Like, don't, mm-hmm. don't, don't, don't say, well, I can't depend on somebody to do it. Uh, figure out how to tell them what, what you need done. Um, because the thing is, is that they, you know, a good assistant will get really, really good at knowing, you know, exactly the way you like, if you communicate those things. I think it's hard because I think sometimes I think when I, uh, when I had someone that was assisting me, I, I had, I wasn't the only project, but I had probably two or three people that I was there. I was, I was a big part of their, their day. Um, and, uh, I had to be, be okay with saying what my, what my frustrations were about weird little things. Like, oh, I didn't like that. Ho-. Like, cause I would get this ping after I stayed in a hotel room. Yes, no. And I'd be like, no, or yes, or, you know, this, this is what it didn't have and everything else. And they, and they just slowly tied in all those things so that it was pretty effortless. But, it takes time um, to to have that that settle in. It's not going to be usually. You're not going to find someone who uh, knows everything about how you like to do things or what you like and for for a while. Um, um, but uh, and I've also worked with a lot of personal assistants um, for big executives, you know. And uh, you know, they're it's most of them could you know for the big executives, most of them could be CEOs at a company because they they then are able to communicate that out for them. And so um, it, I, I highly recommend it. Calendar is the first thing. Um, travel is another one, and then errands and shipping. And also to to add on to that is that if they've been doing this for some period of time, they're going to have processes that will help you. So being okay, as Alex said, to like take your hands off and let them let them bring some of their expertise to the table to just help your overall workflow. Next question. Chris Weidner in Lafayette, Indiana, is talking about a new Windows 11 PC that was never used to browse the Internet, contacted not only Windows Update, MSN, and Bing servers, but also Steam, McAfee, Geo.prod.do, and Comscore Scorecard Research.com. Who's going to use these for production? Courtney. I use a lot of Windows machines for production. I typically try and buy uh, machines like this Melee that are have stripped down versions of Windows 11. They they don't have a lot of the bloatware. They don't come with the bloatware. They have Windows 11 Pro on them, and uh, since they don't have the bloatware, and the other thing is to don't connect it to the internet. You can connect it to a local area network. Just make sure that local area network doesn't have a, an internet connection on it. And if it can't find an internet connection, all the uh, bloatware that tries to contact the mothership doesn't try anymore. And you can disable uh, Windows Update uh, for at least seven days. And you, I find that not, there's a, there's a place I'll put a link in the event chat that details how if you don't buy one of these if you buy a full size desktop or something that has a fully loaded with the bloatware that Microsoft crams on there for the money uh, I'll put an article I'll I'll paste a thing in the in the chat on uh, an article on how to remove a lot of that bloatware. Go ahead, Mitchell. I use a lot of uh, HP Z uh, workstations, um, and I'm sort of transitioning over to Apple again. I've always used uh, Apple to edit with, but here's the thing. Uh, When you buy the uh, computer from the manufacturer, in this case uh, HP, they add their own bloatware to the the system, and a lot of that probably is what you're complaining about. It's best to just wipe that computer and install everything clean so that you control what gets in there and what doesn't. Um, as I was saying, um, the, the editing work that I do, I have to air gap, so I can't be connected to the internet. So that's the other way to deal with it is to simply not be connected. And Jeffrey. Yeah, exactly. A lot of these, uh, a lot of these OEMs will put in cause McAfee doesn't come with a, uh, with a regular 
if you installed your own version of Windows, you wouldn't get McAfee, you wouldn't get Steam or anything like that. So wiping the computer clean, starting with uh, with an uh, operating system and then uh, just uh, bring it in from there, that's, that's going to be your best bet. And as for the Windows update, you know, even Apple has uh, goes and searches to find the uh, the next uh, version, the updates. So you're going to have that same problem across the board. And Alexander, all good advice. One of the things I I do is I absolutely would wipe the 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 PC. Uh, once upon a time, when I used to build Windows computers, that um, I would always do custom installs. Uh, regarding the uh, the update process, I believe with Windows Pro, I would try to get a Windows Pro license if you can. If not, just get something that comes with it because you have more fine grained control over what updates get installed. With Windows Home, you just get the, um, uh, I don't think you can indefinitely delay the the major insider updates, uh, whatever quarterly updates that they do, but on the pro version, you can. Next question. Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon says, I have a four rack unit case that has lots of gear packed in it, including a one unit power strip with outlets on both sides. What can I do to make sure the wall warts on the inside don't come unplugged? Alexander? Yeah, one of the things that I like to do is use gaff tape for a lot of things. And you can get a just rip off a little piece of gaffer's tape and uh, just secure it uh, there. The better solution that I like to use is I get these little power pigtails. So I take all the weight of the, the brick off the back. And also it allows me to actually put more of them on the back because a lot of these power bricks are too wide. A lot of rack mount power conditioners will have certain outlets that are spaced far enough apart, but it doesn't always work. Sometimes you just get a brick that's just way, way too big. So power pigtails, that's what I use. Jeffrey? Yeah, warts are the devil. Simple as that. So, uh, but yeah, you can also, it, it really depends on what type of, uh, what type of ward is powering. Uh, like for instance, with guitarists, you have, you have guitar pedals and, and the back of these pedals are all nine volt. They're all exactly the same. So what you do is you get a power brick for your pedal board. And with that power brick, brick, it has those pigtails as Alexander mentioned. So all you're, you're not plugging in the warts into a power strip. You are plugging in just the plugs. And of course you're doing the ones with the, the correct polarity. Once again, the pedal is always positive, negative, the same polarity on there. So you just have to watch out for that. And then you can get some of these bricks that can go up to 12 volts and down to three volts or whatever you need. So replacing them with this brick could actually help you uh, pare down on your system. Bill? Plus one on Alexander, suggestion of shorty cables. I have a bunch of them in 6, 12, and 18 inches. And if I have to go into uh, a power wart, I just use that in the actual plug, string it down to where the the little adapter can sit in the bottom of the rack, and then uh, tack those cables down inside. Go ahead, Mitchell. Another plus for the pigtails. They work great. Uh, what I usually do with the wall warts, uh, if I have to use them, um, is to strap them so that they are secure with the prongs pointed out and then to put the pigtail over that and then have it loop over to the uh, outlet box. Uh, that seems to work well, particularly if your rack gets bounced around. And then if you find they have an awful lot of USB power warts that, uh, that are plugging in, uh, try to go with a uh, USB distribution block like Anchor has. Alex? Yeah, and when you um, zip ties are really good, <laughs> just to zip tie them to what to what they're actually going to. Um, uh, 
minimizes heat, but keeps them there. Uh, the pigtails are, are also useful. Also think about the fact that if they're all 12 volts or they're all whatever, you can build custom things that are just supplying the 12 volt or the 8 volt or 18 volt and not, you know, you have to build it or you can buy some. There's some people who build those services that you just get rid of all the all the words, <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's, uh, and so when people are really building these for permanently, they usually start to go down that path. Courtney? Yeah, all my flight cases, I build uh, power supplies. I'll, I'll buy a, off the shelf uh, like a 10 amp, 12 volt power supply, and I'll just make little distribution wires that come off of that, that wire off of that. They go to everything that needs a 12 volt power supply, and then I'll use something like this, which is, uh, as was mentioned, a 5 volt power supply for anything that uses USB A type power to barrel connector, whatever. Uh, they use their own wall warts, so replace. This can replace five wall warts. And for the things that have custom power supplies that are in wall warts that are hardwired, uh, I use uh, uh, dual-lock Velcro, which is a hard Velcro uh, that uh, you can find online. It's fairly expensive. It's about three bucks a foot. But uh, uh, you put that on it. It has a great adhesive on the back of it, a 3M adhesive that sticks even when, it's, you know, when something heats up. So I put that on both sides, just a little strip of it to hold the wall wart into the plug. Uh, and that stuff usually stays and keeps it from vibrating out or falling out when it's shipped. And in the chat, Mickey shares, if you have multiple devices that run on the same voltage, you can build or buy a DC distribution system to power all the devices from a single source. Jeffrey? And uh, if you're going to do something in a multi-distribution, DC distribution, make sure you're not only uh, looking at the volts of the uh, plug, but also the amps. So like, for instance, Courtney showed that uh, multi-USB device. Uh, some of the devices need three amps to run, like a, a, a supercharge in the, uh, in the USB uh, port. So it's a lot of those will either do one amp or 2.5 amps. And then, of course, you're finding if you're going to be using those in something that needs like three amps, then like a video uh, dis, uh, distribution system, then you might be finding that the battery starts to die out or the power starts to die out. You get little brownouts there. Next question. Chris Weiner, Lafayette, Indiana is back again with the struggles to get open API access and the backsliding of certain platforms on API access. Is there a list of companies or platforms with good API access? Go ahead, John. Not sure which which companies you want API access to. We use OpenAI because we don't have to pay. They've got a simulator built in. For for example, uh, OpenAI has a has an uh, an API access, but it costs money. So if you query the DaVinci model, you, it's two cents for seven hundred and fifty words, and so we can do our, all our development through open api and do the all the work over there and then when we go into production we we hook it up so we start getting paid so that's the reason why we use open api but i'll talk to you offline about it chris thanks next question brian carney in wheaton illinois says i'm flying domestically with lithium camera batteries for a production is there a limit to how many i can have as a carry-on or how many i can store in my checked luggage and or cases i also need to start filming within an hour of hitting the ground alex yeah i, I don't you, you should check with your airline to know i think it's usually two um you know for what you could take on the carry-on uh, it depends on the size of the batteries i've taken lots of batteries as long as they're smaller ones if they're just the simple ones that go into most small cameras no one's going to ask anything uh, about those it's the big ones the the big v mounts or anton bowers that you have to and i've never you know we've never tried to carry more than two i think per person um and you cannot check those 
Like you can't, you know, like you cannot check batteries. Like don't like in general, but but definitely any production level battery, um, you got to put it in your carry on. You got to figure that out. Courtney. Yeah, Alex is right. The TSA rules now do not allow lithium-ion batteries in the cargo hold. So you, if you do have a bunch of those batteries, you got to get them to your location, ship them uh, overnight uh, to the location because uh, they can travel that way. And there's still limitations on some shippers who will not travel uh, with them on planes. So uh, bear that in mind. You can carry them on carry-on. There's a limit, I think, to the number or the wattage of the batteries you can carry and carry on. So check with the uh, all airlines have a baggage restriction um, um, information on their websites. So check that out and read it for whatever airline you're traveling. Next question. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill. Oh, that's all right. I was just going to mention really quickly that for all the small batteries in my life, I have moved to ordering from MarkerTech or other similar things. Those little battery cases, particularly for the small ones like AA's, um, you can get ones that each individual battery slips into its own thing. If you've ever had a pocket full of those come out of devices and for some reason they manage to tap positives and negatives together and generate a lot of heat, you realize that's one of the major problems is you want to keep those terminals completely separated. And there are cases for most battery styles styles that will ensure that. Now we can go to the next question. Now, uh, Robert Barrow, Roberto Barrow, excuse me, Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. I was given a 2012 13-inch MacBook Pro several years ago, and it's still working today, but the battery life is very short. Is it worth getting the battery replaced or should I just cry once and buy a new one? Alex? Uh, you should buy a new one. <laughs> like it's not like a 2012. Here's the deal: is that I would, I would at at 2012, um, I would use this as some kind of little server or clock or something, you know. But it's not. I wouldn't try to put it back into production or use anything else. Put it somewhere where you can keep it plugged in. I have plenty of these computers, these laptops, and you put them somewhere where they can be used. You can even close them and connect them to a to a monitor, and they're just not no longer a laptop. But the amount of cost it's going to take for you to update it is not worth it. Yeah, so. Jeffrey? I have a 2012 actually right behind me, which I use every now and then. It's an i7, so it really depends on oh, the processor that you have inside there as to what you can do, as Alex said. Uh, but it's also um, it's also a Mac that's going to run more legacy software, uh, especially, I believe, in the 16-bit range. Uh, so you should be able to uh, run any type of older software from there. But it, it, for the most part, uh, the one I have, is fairly useful for some very basic things. And of course, if you know how to open up the, the case and change the battery yourself, it's going to be pretty inexpensive. And Bill? Yeah, for that particularly, I you know, if you feel comfortable, iFixit usually has the battery parts and absolutely detailed instructions as to how to open up your computer case, go in and do something simple like this. You're talking about a 2012 computer. So if things go wrong, you're not losing anything because it's probably designed for recycling anyway. But if you want to see if you can replace that battery and do it, I've had really good success following their instructions and doing things myself. Next question. Chris Widney in Lafayette, Indiana says, Reddit is the latest company to be hacked with phishing. What can administrators do to get their, uh, get through to users not to click on email links, <laughs> Alex. Nothing. <laughs> you know, like, like it's, 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 I'd love to tell you that. So, what when you're in a? I've I've worked in some areas where we're under a fair bit of um, uh, uh, risk, 
And what happens is, is that the administrators are sending out um, phishing that is going to tell you that you did the wrong thing over and over and over again. We were getting them um, when we were in a kind of a state, uh, potentially a state uh, target, um, you know, environment. Uh, we'd probably get a bad email about once every day or two, <laughs> you know, that was that was from us. <laughs> so so it was it was constantly testing people. So you can there's companies that will do this for you, and you pay a service and it costs a certain amount of per, per, per employee or as a general service, and they literally send phishing to people all the time. And when they click on it, it goes, "Hey, you shouldn't have clicked on that. <laughs> you know, like you shouldn't have clicked on that." And it reports you. <laughs> so then you have a conversation with your with your manager about why you clicked on it and how it's not it's not there to punish people. It's just there to. But if they keep on clicking on them, then it starts to be more punishing. <laughs> so, so, so they, that uh, it only takes a couple times for people to click on the wrong thing before they just stop clicking on everything, um, you know, because they don't want to get in trouble. So, the best way to do it is to hire a, a, a security firm that's going to basically fish your employees constantly and um, remind them and show you that it's happening. And you know, that's really the, the best way to handle it. And that's the only way you're going to get employees to stop doing it. And Jeffrey. Education, education, education. Every every site, every place is going to get uh, hacked or fished or whatever at one point in time. It's just a, it's just a human thing that happens. The the what what's called the user error, and it, the real question is how can you recoup from what just happened? And that's where education comes in. So you you learn what steps you need to do. Don't hide uh, don't hide the fact that you clicked on that email uh, that you were the culprit because. If they can find the ground zero, at least they can uh, they can work from that point. So, making sure that everybody knows that if it happens, it's going to happen. Just make sure that you are very straightforward in how what you how you contributed to this problem, so it can be fixed properly. All right, we are now at the top of the hour, and we're making our transition to speak to Tim Moore with View Technologies. Producers, go ahead and submit your questions around virtual productions as we dive in. Welcome, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, everyone loves a good origin story, and you went from... Um, Diamond View, I think it's Diamond View Studios, to then now actually spinning out a new company that's focused on virtual productions. But even before that, talk to us about your just even your start in the production, like traditional production and advertising space. Sure. Well, I got into the video industry really by accident about 20 years ago. Um, I was at a church and uh, and I got an opportunity to go on a missions trip to Dominican Republic, and I had no clue what a mission trip was. I, I figured it was a vacation. So I showed up at the airport in board shorts and flip-flops, and I realized that this was no vacation. You know, it, there was uh, bags and bags of medical supplies and clothes and water, and um, uh, where the church was going was on the border of Haiti, um, where it was an area that uh, uh, needed a lot of help. And so uh, since I didn't have any of the other supplies, uh, one of the counselors came over to me and said, hey, you're going to be the video guy. And I was like, okay, well, what does that guy do? They're like, well, you just hold this camera. He gives me a VHS camera to put on my shoulder. And he goes, you know, that button on the back, whenever you click it, it blinks red and whatever you point at goes in and whatever goes in comes back. So just bring back some memories from this trip and um, that'll do really well for us. So I get on this flight, get over to Santo Domingo and we get about 30 people into a, a bus that holds about 10 people. 
And uh, as I'm going down the street, I'm getting a third world education on how to shoot video. Uh, we go from a, a concrete road to a dirt road to eventually there's no road. And I realized this is uh, unlike anywhere I've ever seen in America. Um, and we pulled up to what's called the borderland. It's right on the edge of, of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And uh, the kind of poverty out there um, you've never seen before. I mean, these people would be jealous to have the problems we have in America. Uh, and I was capturing this, um, you know, through the lens of this camera. And it was so compelling to me because I thought, man, if, if other people could see what I'm seeing right now, um, man, it would, it would give them a lot of insight to how lucky they are. And, uh, and I shot that video, um, and came back about a, a week later and they, they asked me to do the edit for it as well. So my first amateur edit cutting up, uh, you know, what I, what I had shot there in the Dominican. Um, and I got to play it in front of the whole church on the big screen. And there's something about seeing your work, you know, in front of a crowd amplified and hearing and feeling the, the bass from the music. And so as I'm watching people watch it, um, I, I couldn't help but imagine that, you know, I'm going to get the, the golden globe for this and I'll walk on the stage and collect the Emmy afterwards. And, uh, once the video ends, nobody reacts, not a single clap, not, not anything. And what I realized is as they turned the lights back up, uh, people were actually crying because the video. And so and that, this was uh, your first, your first project. This Yes. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it was the content more than anything, just seeing the condition in which these people were living. And, um, you know, that, that group leader came on the stage and said, if anyone wants to help these people, we're just going to pass around a bucket and whatever you can give, um, you know, they'd appreciate it. And I saw people that, uh, you know, had never been to that country before, never met those people. And two minutes ago, didn't even know about the cause. Uh, we're taking money out of their wallet and giving, giving to the cause. And I thought, man, that's the kind of advertising that I want to do. And so I was, then I was 15 years old at the time, decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing this because uh, I kind of got hooked on it. Um, and then later started Diamond View as I, uh, once I graduated. And what makes this story uh, great, and just even our audience on a Monday, office hours overall, but on Mondays we have like a mix of the, the business and the marketing side of things, but then also the innovation. And from Diamond View, and then like many of us experienced during the pandemic, there was a shift for all of us. And you went from advertising Grammy, not Grammy, Emmy award-winning advertising to now virtual production. Can you bridge that gap for us and tell us how you got in there? Yeah, well, you know, I um, I ended up interning in that church for a few years and started Diamond View as a as a wedding company. You know, the Diamond View name was um, because I was uh, uh, helping people when I was um, younger, just kind of get their first uh, wedding video, and and it opened up this door into the commercial world. Which fast forward 15 years, we uh, grew that business and it became the largest video production company in Tampa. And when, um, you know, the pandemic had just come on, I mean, we were in a great place. It was the best year we ever had. Uh, we were just shooting some work uh, down at, at the Super Bowl in Miami. And, uh, and I realized very quickly that I had no contingency plan for a pandemic. 
uh, with the way that I built the business. Because you know, our most of our clients were tourism. You couldn't travel anywhere. Uh, the other uh, portion of of clients were in the sports world, and every arena was shut down. And then our our third vertical was medical, and you couldn't get into a hospital. So I, I thought really quickly, like, hey, I'm I'm going to be out of business in a few months if I can't figure out how to um, be able to to shoot the way we used to. And that was when it clicked that, you know, virtual production uh, could be that paradigm shift that instead of going to the location, we could bring the location to us. Um, and and to give you a little background on VIEW, you know, Diamond VIEW, the production company, uh, we built VIEW just as a, a studio for ourselves at first. But what we found was um, after about three months, the studio was outpacing that legacy business that we built for 15 years. Uh, that we, we needed to roll it out into its own company. And so um, one of the things that happened that was kind of the, the launching point for us is that I'd, in um, uh, 2020, you know, we, uh, or 2021 rather, uh, we opened in January and in February, the Super Bowl was in Tampa Bay that year. And so um, uh, the, the Today Show had gotten wind that there was this virtual production company shooting commercials. And, uh, and this is a, a new way of, of doing production during COVID. And we ended up getting featured on the Today Show during the Super Bowl weekend. And after that, I mean, it just kind of took off like a rocket ship. And so we've been growing ever since. And we, we're a community, we love like the nitty gritty part, like dialing down. And so when it came to the virtual productions part one, can you break that down for some people who are watching who might not understand what that necessarily means? And did you have to hire people who understood it? Was there some research component? Because it is a, still a relatively new space. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the good thing about COVID is we had about 30 people on staff that had nothing to do for several months. And so we all took turns in researching, you know, how we could get this off the ground. We had really never done any visual effects before. And virtual production is essentially using uh, a large LED screen for real-time graphics to, to create this illusion that you're somewhere that you're not uh, by creating a, a virtual environment. And so, you know, there's several aspects to it. One of them is uh, the camera tracking, being able to, uh, you know, accurately get parallax in the camera every time that it moves. And for us, that was, um, you know, it probably took two or three months to even just figure out how that worked. Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot out at this time. Not a lot of people were doing virtual production when we had started. And so it was a lot of tinkering and, and success by failure. And so, um, you know, over time, uh, everyone contributed in, in uh, various ways to, to help get it off the ground. But one of the probably most interesting things that a lot of people don't know is when we went to go um, purchase the LED, we realized, man, this is, it, we essentially did a bet on the business that we'd either one, be able to get this off the ground and it'd be successful, or two, at least it would explode in a grandiose way. So we took all the money in the business and bought the LED with it, but we couldn't afford brand name LED. So we bought it component by component overseas. We found out that in Shenzhen, you could buy the SMDs. Uh, we got the PSUs, which are generic. We went to Guangzhou for the uh, cabinets. And so as we look at, there's five major components of an LED. It's similar to building a custom computer. If you know what they are and get the right combination, you can get the right performance out of it. And so we essentially uh, assembled our own LED uh, to, to make our first stage. And what was really unique is that um, after that Today Show ad uh, aired, 
we had people calling from all over the world, from India, from Australia, from Malta, which I had never even heard of before. I didn't know it was a country. I thought it was a, some kind of milkshake. And they were asking, we want to buy your LED. And uh, the first seven, eight, nine people, we were like, hey, we don't sell the LED. We just kind of you know, figured it out. And then by about the 10th person, we said, okay, we'll help, we'll help build it for you. And that, that was a, uh, you know, a big move for us because that's now become one of our biggest parts of our business is building studios for others. And what did those, those virtual productions look like in, in the early days compared to where you are now? Well, um, before we got the camera tracking, you know, we had a rear projection screen we'd used for sports because the uh, challenge with shooting sports is you have a very limited window with the athlete. And so we would, we would set up the rear projection screens literally in the player parking lot. They would get out of their car and we would shoot the commercials as fast as we could. So we, we had understood um, you know, shooting with virtual backgrounds, but not in the sense of a, a real-time game engine, not in the sense of a motion tracking and virtual cameras. So um, uh, for us, that's how it started was, was just really using 2D plates and doing a, a essentially what we call 2.5D, uh, where we put the person far enough from the background that they actually parallax you know, uh, in relation to the screen. Um, but once we had moved from rear projection to the volume, that was where we could really do the the full virtual production, which is in a, a 3D game engine, um, essentially using a, a virtual background and tracking to give, give the illusion. And for those who are possibly doing some research now as they're listening to you answer these questions, you went from building out the, the studio for yourselves, for your internal work, but then now you are also, you've expanded to other locations. And there's this line that you said, I remember reading it, is you're on a mission to create the world's largest network of virtual production studios for the film, television, and advertising industries. And there's also a form of training that happens as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about the business model in that as well? Yeah. One thing I realized over the years is that anytime the internet hits an industry, it's extremely disruptive. And this is the first time that the internet has really hit studios. I mean, for a hundred years, we've gone in these boxes and we paint the walls green and imagine what's there. But now with real-time technology, uh, not only can we shoot in virtual worlds, but we can connect studios in a way we never have before. People can participate in a decentralized type of production. And so when we found that that was not only uh, useful, but uh, a way to really create um, a lot of efficiencies, we begin connecting our studios. And so we have four corporate-owned studios in Las Vegas, Nashville, Tampa, and Orlando. And what we found is that when you can um, pool your resources, whether that's the environments, like we have a virtual backlot that, that hosts most of our environments, uh, or the uh, creative talent on the network, you, you start getting these network effects that you couldn't have in a single location. You know, one of the advantages to Hollywood is everyone's there. You know, you have the directors, the DPs, the producers, they're all in one centralized spot. Uh, when you create a network that allows that same thing to happen, but it defies uh, location, now you begin to get something extremely valuable. And so as we begin uh, expanding our network, today we have uh, 20 studios in the VIEW network, 16 of which uh, we've built for clients and affiliates. Um, we're starting to see more and more network effects. And so uh, the 
what you had mentioned before about the the learning. I mean, this is the most challenging part when you're in an emerging industry. Where where do you go Google this? You know, nobody knows this stuff. Uh, and like I was saying before, a lot of figuring it out is breaking it and putting it back together. And you know, my philosophy is it, we we had a few cracks in the pipe, admittedly, when we first started. And uh, there's two ways you can fix that. One is you go pipe by pipe and find the crack. Or two, you just turn the water on high. And you'll find the cracks really quick. And so that's what we did. You know, uh, We went across all the studios, did our best workflows, used our best tech stack. And we would create new standards every week. We would say, all right, this is the best way to do it until the following week where we said, all right, we learned something new. Let's, we're going to do it this way now. And so what that's done is it's culminated a lot of learnings that now someone starting in virtual production doesn't have to start from scratch because not only have we learned in our studios, but now we're learning from our clients. And we've created this uh, community where people can uh, get a, a quick start into virtual production. You don't have to start from ground zero. And I, I think that's something that's really valuable to the network. And as you talk about the the expansion and the the breaking and putting back together, and you have also raised 17, I think it was last year, 17 million in funding. How important was it to raise funding for your ability to to grow? Well, I, I think there's two ways to look at it. One is if you're growing an organic business, like I did at my production company, um, there's going to be some limitations on on how quick you can go to market. And uh, one of the things we realized early on is that um, this is a, a relatively blue ocean type of environment. That mean, meaning that there's uh, not a lot of competition. This is still an emerging industry. Uh, the adoption rate from the general public is uh, still pretty low. And so when you look at the ability to um, quickly go to market, you know, you need a lot of capital to do so. And so that was, that was one of the ideas behind accelerating our growth was that, hey, you know, we need to get some serious cash to uh, build out this network. But two, we may never get this opportunity again. And, um, you know, if you look at uh, different companies like Facebook's a great example of it. I mean, you know, they're, they're, hawk, uh, they're hacking the network uh, over at Harvard to get their first um, uh, kind of users on there. And then they continue to expand, expand and got to the point that they hit escape velocity. And escape velocity is the point that you're growing so fast, the competition can't catch up. And when you look at what Google Circles did, Google Circles spent three years building the best social media platform in the world, and then nobody wanted to use it. And so there's there's the, uh, that first mover advantage that uh, you can only gain by by moving quick. And so that was um, when I look at you know uh, what our philosophy was to do the raise and and go quick to market. Um, you know we were we were trying to really uh, accelerate our growth of the network. Awesome. We'll get into some of the questions from the panel. Alexander. Yeah, just looking at these studios, which look incredibly impressive. What I'd like to know is when you sat down during the planning stages for the construction, I imagine there are or there would have been a lot of variables involved. What were some of the non-negotiables where you said we have to get this right? Mm hmm. Well, I would say, you know, color is a big one of them. If you can't like particularly um, uh, the grayscale values, if you're shooting on something, and this is why projection is so difficult to do virtual production on, if you're shooting on something and you can't get deep blacks, it's not going to look real 
to the viewer. And so one of the big things that we from day one have been really critical about is the shader. Not a lot of people think about the shader. The shader is the little black plastic piece between the pixels. So you'll hear a lot about pixel pitch, what uh, color depth uh, you know the panels are, um, the refresh speed, uh, the clocking on it, the read write. Nobody talks about the shader. The shader is one of the most important things because you see light through shadows. In the absence of shadows, there is no light. And so you, you, your eye understands what uh, levels are based on the relative scale of that, of that luminosity. So uh, uh, for us, having a, a deep black shader was very important. Um, now, if you're going to do this in a billboard, that doesn't matter as much. You're competing with natural daylight. You know, your objective is to be seen from miles away. If you're, sh if you're shooting something that you're trying to convince the eye is real, that the shader is important. And it's something that if you asked, you know, uh, nine out of 10 people probably wouldn't say that that was a non-negotiable. Uh, for us, that was something we found out early on that we had to have right in all the stages. Alex? I have a few, few questions. <laughs> so anyway, so um, uh, when you said there were five components, what are those? Can you explain what the five yeah. components are of the wall? So the, the cabinet is what uh, the panel is encased in and so that's just the metal frame for it the psu the power supply that is the um uh, gives power to the panel the um uh, smd uh that is the the actual pixels on the front of the board and um uh, the hub board is what allows the data to be distributed to the different smds typically on a standard panel you have four modules in a cabinet and so those four SMD modules um, are, are delivered data through the hub board. And then the final thing is the receiving card. And so you'll hear a lot about processing for LED. You have two types of processing. One is the sending card, which is the, um, uh, the processor that's on the computer side sending out to, to the wall. But then you have the receiving card. And this is equally as important because that sits on the actual panel itself. And so the receiving card has a lot of the data needed for the color science on it. And you can tweak this, um, you know, uh, depending on how fast you want to uh, put the clock speed of the panel, um, depending on what frame rate you're using, that could be very important. And so the, those five things, there, there's a lot of mixtures you can do to them, but without those, you know, you need each of them uh, to really make it work. And so you were, you were buying all these components separately. So you're not buying anything that's like can slide together. You're build building them from scratch, essentially. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and these are all impressive. common components. Um, you know, if you go online and look up SMD board and put a particular pixel pitch in, you'll find there's hundreds of vendors. The challenge becomes uh, the getting the right mixture. And, right. and that's where you'll start to see things like, it, for instance, uh, you know, Nation Star is a very popular SMD. Um, uh, you have different uh, scales of that. You know, if you were to use mm -hmm. the wrong type of receiving card uh, with the wrong pixel pitch, it might not have the uh, the data load to actually be able to run all of those pixels. Right. So if you're using a fine pitch, you're going to need a particular type of receiving card. So that's all, all this information is online. I, I wouldn't suggest the way uh, we did it to do it because it is a, uh, a challenge. You know, it's probably best for a professional to put it together, but it's a great way to learn it because when you build something, you learn it at a level that you never could yeah. if you just buy it. And so that's really helped us over the years. And 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 what kind of cost savings do you get from buying just the pre-built panels? Uh, probably a, a tenth of the cost wow. of what brand name LED is, yeah. 
Interesting. And, and what's what's the pitch of the panels that you usually use? All across the board. So, um, you know, from one nine up to three nine. Okay. And there's advantages to each. So pixel pitch is the distance between the center of a pixel to the center of the following pixel. And so it's not the gap in between. Uh, but mm-hmm. the uh, one thing that actually um, uh, changes is what is the size of your uh, pixel capsule? So if you have a large capsule, like l- let's say a SMD 2020, that's a, uh, a you know a point two zero millimeter capsule on that pixel. Uh, if you're um, uh, if you're doing that on a tight pitch, you're essentially pixel to pixel, uh, right. so you don't have a lot of room for the shader in between. But if you're shooting on a three nine and you have an SMD fifteen fifteen, which is a pretty small capsule, now you have a lot of black space in between. So all of these things are are um, parts of the SMD that you may play with if you want a desired effect. And I tell people, you know, the, a common misconception is the finer the pixel pitch, the better it is. Um, it's actually not true because you're increasing the reflective surface area of the LED when you do that. Uh, when we're shooting night scenes, we actually prefer to shoot on a 3.9. And the reason is you have more of that black fill space. Um, and it also taxes the processor less. You know, when you look at the image you're sending to the screen, these are millions of dots all have to be processed on a three nine pitch. Uh, you know, you have uh, three times less pixels than you would on a one nine. And so the the idea of knowing what your compute resources are and how many pixels you can actually drive is an important thing to consider when you're building your stage. Because some of the stages we have are 150, 160 feet uh, across it, you're talking 24k, 30k images um, that you need to consider. And 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 how much of a challenge is Marae, and how do you manage that? Well, there's two ways to manage it. One is depth of field. You know, the shallower the depth of field, the less uh, uh, of an issue it is. And then the second is the distance of the um, of the actor to the screen. And so, you know, on a typical XR stage, and there's there's an important thing. Uh, to distinguish between XR stage and an LED volume, which is uh, more considered uh, ICV effects in camera visual effects. Uh, XR stages typically have all of the LED in focus. And the reason for this is that they're reprocessing the image on the computer side. And so uh, what they're getting in camera is also supplemented with what they're compositing through the computer in real time. In uh, in that instance, you know the the moray isn't as big of an issue because they're they're overlaying on it. Right. But in what we do, you know, our goal is uh, final pixel in camera, and so we never want moray. It blows the whole effect, and so we're we're particularly um, looking for that in, in everything we shoot. And and like I said before, it's just distance or depth of field. If you figure out those that right combination, you'll never see it. Are you doing? Are you using a custom build of Unreal, or are you? Um, no, we go out vanilla. You know, we're using five one on most of our stages right now, uh, and we use in display. And so, and are you connecting the studios in in real time so they can talk to each other? So when you're talking about connected studios, and and if so, what protocol are you using to connect them? Yeah, so we use um, something called Sienna Engine, which is an NDI orchestrator. Mm-hmm. And what it allows us to do is um, from each stage, we have a feed of all the cameras that are on that network, and we could feed it to any of the other stages. And so, uh, you know, our model is it's less of a hub and spoke, you know, one to many and more of a many to many to mesh mm-hmm. network. And so this allows us to do really unique combinations of signal flow from Vegas to Nashville, Tampa, and vice versa. And what kind of latency do you get between uh, the, the, the 
locations? Um, it, it's very, very quick. I mean, four milliseconds, Tampa to Orlando. Uh, we're, you know, four. 10 gig. Yeah. Fiber. We try to be point to point. I mean, you have to make a hop on a, a few of these places, but it's, you know, as, as much as we could try to be point to point, we are. And are, and, um, and do you find that clients want to do that where they're doing multiple events where they have a speaker in one place, a speaker in another? Uh, no, it's kind of unnecessary right now. You know, it's just a feature that we see for the future. When you look at what type of network with the metaverse need to run on, uh, mm -hmm. we know that it's a much more high speed, higher bandwidth than what we currently have. So we're building a network, not for today, but for tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. Courtney. A uh, couple of technical questions. Uh, it sounds like you're still building your own LED, uh, modules and walls. Um, and, and you in your SMB devices are the individual LED elements coincident, or do they go through a little light pipe so that they all come out at the same point so that your shader doesn't occlude any one color if you get off axis? And um, well, there's one question. I've got another one after that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, the way that the SMD works is so uh, it stands for surface mounted diode, and the distance of which that's mounted can vary. The higher it is, the more viewing angle you have. But it also creates spill and contamination because each pixel is now lighting the pixel adjacent to it. So the um, when you're talking about viewing angle, you know it's it's a very important thing. You know every um, in in common LED you have an RGB. So if you were to go on the right side of the panel, you would see the blue diode more because you're you're actually occluding the green and the red because you're looking straight on at the blue. Um, and you see this shift happen a lot in, in ceilings. You know, when you're looking at that angle, it might get a blue shift or a red shift. And so uh, the way that we work with that is the, uh, a scalloped capsule. So the way the scalloped capsule works is it's a lens on top of the LED where instead of it being a, a square or flat edge, it's, it's actually scalloped. And so that uh, prevents the uh, shift of color because you're actually seeing the, the top of the LED reflecting the other color as it shifts. And so this is, it's a, it's a very nuanced way to get around color shift, but it's, uh, it, it prevents having that red blue that you see a lot of times when you get a little too far over. And the other question I had is about your uh, camera tracking system. You didn't mm -hmm. talk about that. Are you using a, a multiple camera infrared cameras with uh, retroreflective markers? Are you using an overhead target type system with witness cameras? Are you using combination of uh, encoders and lenses? What's your camera yeah, tracking system? Yeah, we use an inside-out method. So we're uh, on most of our stages, we're using MOSIS, um, which is an absolute-based system. It, it uses the uh, infrared emitter on top of the camera, and then it looks up at the star constellation, which, like you're saying, is the retroreflectors randomized in the ceiling. And, and from that, you're able to um, triangulate the position of the camera in, in a subframe um, time and, and that's important because you got to think about the, the feedback loop of virtual production is a very orchestrated time sequence event. So uh, when you're when you have a tracker like the Moses tracker, um, when you turn it on, because it's an absolute based system, meaning that the stars stay where they're at, you don't have to you don't need to uh, calibrate them each time it knows its position, uh, the the movement has to be uh, interpreted by the computer rendered out to the processor, put on the screen before the next frame uh, on the camera. And so that's a very quick subsampling type of event that happens. 
Um, and for us, what we've found is typically you have to use Genlock in order to do this because you're syncing several systems. Um, we found that with our LED, that's not, that's not a necessary thing to do. And uh, the reason is the way that we're clocking the whole system. Um, a lot of times we'll do 60 hertz or 120 hertz on the screen itself and uh, we'll have different intervals in the camera, but it'll be a, uh, a multiple of whatever we're seeing on the screen. And so that allows us to stay in frame sync, uh, yeah. even if the Genlock is disconnected. And so um, going back to your original question about the tracking, the, uh, while its primary use case is for uh, figuring out where the position of the camera is, um, it also is, is the um, most important part of the entire system uh, when it comes to latency and speed. Because if you get that one slow, everything else will be disorienting. And so that's that's something that we found too. It's, it's so important to start the priority of virtual production at the tracking level and then go down to the display level. Great. And pulling in this comment from our producers, Nathan says, this sounds like the craziest and riskiest way to have done um, when you've been learning about it in just a couple of months and you put every cent you have into it, LOL. Glad it worked out for um, Tim, but man. So with that, what's been the biggest lesson that you've learned through this process that because you are an emerging this is emerging tech what's been the biggest lesson in this part of your journey um well you know the the interesting thing about covid was that good businesses that had great business plans um were going out of business regardless of if they took a risk or not and so as I evaluated what, uh, you know, the next nine months was going to be like in the production company, and that was about how much cash we had left was, was nine months to, um, uh, to stay open. Uh, I just thought to myself, would I rather not take a risk and dwindle down to my last dollar or, uh, you know, give it everything I got. And if it doesn't work out, at least I went out in a bang. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes you got to risk it for the biscuit. It paid off for this one. We're lucky. Uh, I, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this is a business model. People should go out and try. Uh, this could have easily been a story in the opposite direction, but, um, it, it was a bit of a Cinderella type launch with, uh, spending every dollar we had, putting it together. Thank God it worked. And then, and then getting on the today show and now growing, um, across the U S uh, really for us, the next step is figuring out what's the next mountain to climb, because we think that, uh, you know, virtual production is just a gateway drug into something much bigger and visual effects used to be an area that was only, um, really entered by the top of the market. I mean, you think about for years, uh, visual effects was just for the blockbuster Hollywood films. And now it's coming all the way down to a kid with a laptop in their dorm room can make incredible stuff nowadays. And that's what technology has done to, to democratize access uh, to this type of um, uh, this, this type of opportunity. And so we, we want to continue to do that. And that's kind of one of our goals is that we want to see this technology uh, continue to empower young people to get in the industry. All right, but let's get into these questions. Absolutely. The first one comes from Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he asked, what sync system do you use for the LED wall? Yeah, so our Genlock is on a, a Everett's, and uh, we typically, based on what, what frame rate we're doing, 
uh, we'll have the DP tell us what we want to put the system in. And so uh, on most of our um, stages, that's that's the system we're using. Next question. Douglas Carmichael back again with Virtual Productions. What processing engine are you using for your homebrew LED system? <laughs> um, well, we use a little bit of everything. So uh, Novastar was the first one we started using. Uh, uh, today, we use a lot of Brompton as well. And uh, Megapixel, we're working on something with Unilumen right now that we're pretty excited to debut here pretty soon. Next question. Kenneth Jones in Seattle, Washington up next. Which client groups were or are the easiest to bring into the virtual production world? Which were the most troublesome? Um, I would say the visionaries. You know, we were really fortunate that during COVID, uh, you know, Disney had a operation in Orlando and they had an operation in Anaheim. And uh, during that time, the Orlando office opened up uh, a little bit sooner than the Anaheim one did. And they had a lot of production that shifted to the East Coast. They were already a visionary in the space. I mean, they did Mandalorian. They understood the technology, so they were an early adopter. Um, we were able to do a lot of work with them and that, that helped us early on, um, uh, you know, continue to grow to more clients. But I would say, you know, the, when you look at what are the most challenging clients, it, it's people that don't want to take the risk. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a new way of doing things. And if you have something that works, it's, it can be scary to try to uh, take it out of the field and into the studio and, and make it look as realistic as you want. So we found that people that are, uh, you know, uh, Early adopters tend to be on the front end of, of technology. They're the best clients for us because they're open to taking the risk. And then uh, more of the conservative um, uh, uh, video agencies, you know, they're probably going to wait a couple of years to, to try this technology out. And when you say risk, can you break that down a little more? Is it the new workflow that they're because they're in a traditional mindset like what level of risk if your team is the one providing the stage and and helping them to actually get their their product out well, I, I would say it's a it's a major risk all the way across the board. If you think about it, you have people that have been doing production one way for the last 50 years, and now you throw them into an LED volume, and the DP has to learn, uh, you know, the settings on the camera, what shutter speeds he can't do, uh, you know, how he's going to sync with the screen. The gaffer now has to really understand that light spill is important; that you have to contain light. Uh, he has to understand that an RGB rendition of a, a color space is much different different than what we have on uh, the high fidelity color production lights. And, you know, how do you make the combination of those two look realistic? Uh, the producer now has to understand the time constraints of the brain bar, which is the people holding the entire shoot hostage in the back there as they're uh, drilling away on the uh, environments, you know, that the director now has to have patience to say, hey, uh, even though he says something in an instant, it may take the, uh, you know, real time animators in the back to uh, a few minutes to make that happen. And so, um, uh, you know, to be very honest about the risks, there are several because unless you've done this multiple times, you're learning for the first time. And a lot of times virtual production is at a premium. So, you know, people are paying a, a very large rate and then it's, you got a, a big project on the line, the clients there in the room. And so I think that's been one of the biggest challenges we see with people entering into virtual production is they, they want to do it on a test project, not on a real project. 
which is understandably how things should go. You know, uh, you'd hate to bring your biggest budget client in and then be learning on the spot in front of them. Um, uh, but that is something that I think is in the back of a lot of people's mind is, hey, I haven't done this before. Is this the right project for me to bring into virtual production? And you actually uh, saw somewhere where you had shared that every production doesn't make sense. What kind of production would you say, you know what, stick to the traditional model, virtual is not the way to go? Tons of productions. I would say if you could shoot in a park, go shoot in a park. You know, that's that's a lot easier than, uh, you know, bringing in the park to the virtual studio, uh, trying to get all of those settings exactly the same. You know, what becomes really valuable is if you're shooting in a park and the mountains and then the beach, because those things would be very challenging to do. Or you go into a, a forest and you need, you know, 30 of the trees removed. That's hard in the real world. So uh, you look at things that are logistically difficult and that becomes a piece of cake in the volume. So when I look at what type of concepts work well, I, I really just do the common sense test. Would this be easier just to walk out with a camera and shoot it? And if so, you know, you're going to have a $50,000 a day less premium because you're not going into this high tech environment and, uh, you know, commanding all these resources. Um, but uh, I will say, on the flip side, what's something really good uh, to do in virtual production? Automotive uh, all day. I mean, that's that's probably, hate to put a number on it, but probably 35, 40% of our work. I mean, you're shooting something that's a mirror in every direction. You know how difficult that is on location. And then you got to get permits. And then you're, you're now in a high-speed vehicle that can kill people. And you're going to try to shoot that. I mean, that's a like launch a missile down the street and then get a bunch of people to run after and try to capture it. It's, it that, that is a challenging feat to do, uh, you know, high-end automotive. You put that car in a virtual stage and, oh, man, it's, it's everyone's high-fiving. They're like, this is amazing. Let's, you know, an, another thing, too, people don't realize, when you have a target that that's, that's that large, that's that reflective, now all of your modifiers need to be equally scaled. And so, you know, I recall going on locations where we'd have 40 buys on cranes uh, over the cars just to get the belt line uh, reflection just right. Now, that same big 40-foot white box, there's a kid in the back of the room who just pops that square on the screen in three seconds. I mean, that was like 10 gaffers. And, and the wind's blowing and every, it's like a sail, you know, that you think the thing's going to fly away. That that now is so easy. So I, I, I say this to say that there are things that are amazing in virtual production. And if you find those and you can double down and keep doing it that way, you know, that, that's better for the client, for the crew, for everybody. But there's some stuff that's just common sense to shoot it outside the studio. And so we let people know. And this this happens more times than not to say, hey, you know, these scenes would be good in virtual production, but the other part of this script, you should probably just go shoot, shoot on location. Next question. I love that answer. Uh, Jesse Mills, San Francisco Bay Area. What camera tracking systems are you using and why? So we use that, like I was saying earlier, the MOSIS. Um, and for us, you know, it's about uh, reliability and ease of use. And so the, the MOSIS system, because it's an inside out system, uh, when you turn it on, it knows its absolute value in space with no calibration. 
so you calibrate it once and then it uses the star constellation to understand its exact position. Um, so in a commercial environment, which is what our studios are, and I, sh I should mention that, uh, you know, we, we don't go after the feature film industry. We've done some feature films, but our, uh, our client is someone who comes in uh, for two days and then is on to the next project. So we have a quick um, turns in all of our studios. And so it's important that the technology turns on and works. And so that's, that was one of the, the big factors when looking at a tracking system. And we, and that Moses star tracker has been a great one for us. Courtney. Yeah. If you're, if you have an overhead led for car shots, let's say for, to do the reflections, doesn't that interfere with the overhead uh, tracking system? That that's a great question. So the first time we built our ceiling, we had that problem. And that's actually probably the least problem when you have an overhead ceiling. The bigger problem is you've now created a, a parabolic shape with the volume, and then you put a lid on top of it. This is probably the worst thing you can do for audio because you're inside of a can and this can is reflective and it multiplies the sound. And so uh, what we realized was, you know, not only can I not get tracking, it sounds horrible. And then what about the lights that are back here? Now, now all the lights are cut off. So what, what we created was a perforated LED. And what it is, is it's a, you see this in live events, they call them blow through LED. Um, uh, but we've spaced this a little bit differently than your common, um, uh, blow through. What it, what it does is every other pixel line is removed. And that allows us to let the audio escape through the ceiling. It allows the heat to uh, move up through there. That's another, the vortex effect is real. You go inside, you know, uh, 50 million light bulbs and it gets hot. You know, the people don't talk about this, but you, you start cooking that thing. I mean, we're about 350,000 watts on our uh, Orlando stage. I mean, that's a microwave when you get in there with a bunch of people. So the, uh, that heat dissipation is important too, to go through the ceiling. But what we found, and you can see this on the website, is um, when we were able to perforate the panel at the right distance, uh, you can't actually see it from the camera because it's like beams in the house. If you put the beams at the right distance, because you're on an angle, you never see the ceiling. You just see the next beam in line. And so uh, what that allowed us to do is put the tracking in between the gaps. And uh, so we actually have our stars in our ceiling embedded into the LED. And, uh, and then our lights are above the ceiling. And so this is, this is particularly interesting. And sometimes it's, you know, people scratch their heads on, on, uh, you know, why we would do that. But think again about the, um, uh, the case of automotive. If I have a mirror in every direction, where do I put the backlight that I don't see it? That's challenging. But if you have a two way LED, meaning that you can see it one way, but you can't, uh, and light can pass through the other. Now we can actually put all the lighting in the ceiling. And if there's a sun on the middle, right at the North point, we can just beam a spotlight right through there and it looks motivated from that spot. So that's um, something really unique about uh, our ceiling panel and you can learn more about it on the website. So lighting through the LCD panel, does it, it acts really kind of like a diffuser then to some degree? Right? It acts more like a grid. So, you know, the, um, the interesting thing about it is 
you know, if you were to put a, a grid onto a light, it would focus it in a direction. And so um, the way that the uh, light is perforated on the east and west sides of the volume, you know, we can go on a, a really good angle. Um, but if you were to try to go a very hard angle north or south, it's going to stop it because it's, you know, it's actually uh, uh, blocking the light from going through. So it's, it's better to go straight down there. But on an LED stage, the unique thing is when your camera is inside of it, there is no orientation to where the world is. You can just turn the whole world around. And so uh, the gaffer goes, oh, I need a backlight, but I can't do it back there because the way the LED is, I go, all right, well, let's just turn the whole world 90 degrees. And a lot of times yeah. people fall out of their chair like, what, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, look. It makes it, the reverses it, very easy. You yes, don't, don't move all crack. these lights, people. Everybody stop. We're just going to move the world real quick. And when they see that, they're like, oh, wow, my conception of how I would light and move and the way the AD uh, times out uh, these, these kind of choreographed uh, relights is totally different now. I mean, we have on some of our stages, like in Orlando, I was saying 155 feet. We just do five sets on, on uh, all the way across the volume. And then we put the camera in the middle. We shoot set one, shoot set two, shoot. There is no, there's no reset. It's it, the whole commercial is just set on the volume and we're, we're shooting it one by one. So it's, again, it's just a paradigm shift to the way production's done in, in a virtual stage. You and how much have training? have a polarized lighting grid. That's amazing. Yeah. How much training do you have to do with um, like DPs and the crew now with that? Well, like you I said, think that mindset now that shift. we're, you know, it's almost two years. Uh, a lot of people have been introduced to the technology, some incredibly talented DPs now that are pushing it farther than it's ever been. So I, I would say now there's much less. We, we run workshops at about a quarterly cadence at all of our studios, and we invite the video community to come in. We say, hey, you know, try it on our dime, not on your, not on your clients. And so um, that allows them time to practice and play. Um, and a lot of times we learn from that, you know, people will bring in new cameras and we'll, we'll try out things and see what works and what doesn't. Um, but yeah, I would say now there's, there's less training time because people have, have become familiarized with it. But if you're starting from ground zero, um, you know, you're, you're going to want to spend a couple hours with the screen to really understand, uh, you know, how it works and, and what things you can and can't do. I mean, capabilities are great, but limitations are what you die on. So you got to understand what's, what is the real limitations of this? Because the marketers won't tell you that. They'll tell you, uh, oh, this is, you could do everything in the moon and you can't. So it's, it's really good to understand that. Next question. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area says, what is the smallest space you've used to create a studio and what is the biggest? Um, so we have a mobile unit and we use it for sports. Uh, that's about a, a 20 foot screen that we travel around um, and shoot on media day with. And so uh, that one, we can get a lot done on it. The challenge becomes you can't uh, move too far left or right or you fall off screen. The, the uh, shot begins to um, fall off the edge. Um, but uh, as far as large screens goes, Orlando is our largest uh, and uh, that one's uh, 155 by 27 feet tall. Um, we've brought in a 40 foot boat to shoot in there. And so, you know, the, the idea of being able to have a yacht on a real time background and that background isn't the water uh, is great for the DPs. Uh, no bobbing up and down, no wind, uh, you know, uh, no rain delays. 
So, um, you know, to each use case, there's a size that makes sense uh, for, uh, you know, shooting a, a waist up for sports, 20 feet's great. Uh, for shooting a yacht, you're going to need something a little bigger. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's interested in what your typical crew complement is for a show. Good question. What What do you mean by that? Like who is on the set? Sounds like, yeah. Well, who is, what does that crew look like? Yeah. So it's a traditional crew. I don't think there's any less or, or, or more positions. Uh, but on the studio side, uh, we add positions to the, the brain bar, which is essentially the team that's operating the screen. Um, and so for us, we, we have three main roles. One is the visual effects supervisor. That is the person that uh, talks to the crew um, uh, and then gets, you know, for example, the, the director says, I want to move the tree. Uh, well, that's an ambiguous command. So he goes back and says, which way do you want to move it? Uh, he says left. He goes, all right, well, uh, you're left or my left. So he, he, he tells the operator, uh, you know, what the crew is, is trying to do. And then the operator is really just focused on in the game engine, uh, making that command happen. And the reason why we've done this division of labor is we realize that if you look at an Unreal Engine operator, this is someone who's typically never been in a film environment. I mean, these, if you went back two years ago, these people were developing games in a cubicle. They don't understand when a, a producer is screaming at them that that's totally normal, that nothing's wrong. It's just uh, they're, they're trying to get things faster. So we've, we've seen uh, meltdowns on stage where there's a, a difference in culture between a, uh, you know, a game developer and uh, you know, someone who's operating at the speed of a commercial set. And so that, uh, that, that line of communication is very important from the visual effects operator to the stage operator. And then we typically have uh, an LED tech. And the LED tech is, is um, working with the DP to make sure the colors are right, to make sure that uh, everything is, um, uh, you know, all the timing and the sequencing is working out. So uh, I would say probably on the studio side, you have, you have that four or five uh, roles that are, that are additional just to, um, uh, you know, make everything run smooth, but everything else is a traditional production. Next question. Claude Lopez Waterman in Roanoke, Virginia says, when you have a not traditional ratio, how do you serve the media for it? Disguise, wash out? Um, you know, we're using Pixera, which is a media server that allows us to um, uh, do similar to what Disguise does. Uh, but again, you know, the way that you approach a virtual production shoot depends on what the content is. And I'll give you an example. We were shooting with NASCAR recently, and uh, they wanted to do uh, some lookbacks on a 50-year history of, uh, of NASCAR. And what we had was uh, 2D images that we were uh, manually parallaxing on the screen as someone was telling this story. And for us, there's no reason to do that inside of a 3D game engine. You know, that, that's essentially something After Effects can do or something that a, a media server could do. And so as we look at, you know, what our approach is, um, it, it's on three levels. One is the media server. Uh, uh, two is uh, Unreal Engine. And then uh, the third is uh, another type of playback system like a Resolume, which is a multi-display, multi-layer player. Um, and that allows us to do a lot of quick changes to 2D assets um, that that aren't typically in a 16 by 9 ratio. They're, they're normally very large panoramics that would um, have a challenge in typical video players. Next question. 
Alexander Knight, Vancouver, BC, and here on the panel, what kind of processing power and server farm do you need to accomplish what you've done? Well, we use Puget Systems and they've been a great partner for us to help us with the computers. At each stage, it, you know, uh, varies based on how many pixels are on the screen. So, um, uh, in Vegas, we have seven, uh, render nodes that are helping render all of that, um, uh, image to the screens. And in, in Orlando, we have eight. Uh, in Tampa, when we first started, we had one. Uh, and that was a big advantage that that, uh, was a three nine pixel pitch and at a hundred feet, Three nine pixel pitch is exactly 8K, and on a standard computer with uh, a six thousand, you have two two four uh, K outputs. You can run a hundred foot screen at three nine on a on a single computer system. So you know the render nodes are proportional to how many pixels you're pushing, and uh, typically that's how many four K slices does that screen contain. Next question. Claude Lopez-Waterman, from back from Roanoke. If you want to build a screen that's not a traditional ratio, what's your preferred processor, Novastar? Um, you know, processing uh, has very little to do with the ratio on the screen. One of the things that uh, the uh, H-series Novastar has an advantage is it has a splicer inside of the um, processor. So all contained into one, you can stretch, you can fill. And so uh, I would say the H series, if you had a uh, an odd shaped display, could be a, could be a good one. Um, but if you wanted to use a Brompton system or you had Brompton panels, um, you, you would sent, uh, essentially just have to add um, some type of scaler, you know, to the front end of the signal flow uh, and get the same effect. Next question. Uh, Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts says, do you see any trends in virtual production solutions uh, primarily by using single vendors or mixing vendors with APIs? That's a good one. Explain to me what the question is on that one. So he's, oh, go ahead, Bill. Sorry. Yeah, I, well, it, it it's a little oddly worded. He says, do you see any trends in virtual production solutions by primarily, and then he notes by single vendors or mixing vendors with APIs? So I think it's depending on how, you know, you, systems sure, from multiple people. Do you find, yeah, are you like cobbling together a solution with yes. lots of software or... Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of like uh, the history of production, isn't it? You know, you, you have the call sheet and then you have the uh, file folders and then the, the graphics guys want something different and then there's 15 other programs. So that, yeah, in a, in a VFX workflow, it's always been discombobulated. What we've found is that, you know, we, we're pushing as much as we can into the real-time engine. And so a majority of our workflow happens in Unreal, but we have blueprints to help us do other things. Um, so uh, I would say if you look at our tech stack, you know, we, we have about three, uh, different playback systems, um, and media servers, and then, uh, everything that's on the front end of creating, uh, that's all done in unreal. And so, uh, we're typically not, if we can avoid it, we're not going through a cinema 4d or a Maya or, you know, messing with Revit or anything else before we go into unreal. We just start in unreal. Courtney. And, and one thing I didn't ask is, do you have to bring in a motion base if the actors have to be jostled around or, or experience differences? In, Depends in what your budget is. And, yeah. yeah. If, you're, if, if you don't have a budget, it's a, it's a four by four piece of wood underneath the tire that you're, <laughs> you're making the car go up and down. Two grips. But, but yes, we, uh, you know, we've used, we do have two um, uh, Bolt X um, robots. And so the cinema robots 
uh, help on the camera motion side of things. We, we don't have necessarily a gimbal for uh, cars or, um, or, you know, any of that kind of like uh, vehicle movement. For, I guess they just program in the background movement for the boat. Way, you you know, can. I mean, there's something the t- to the effect of seeing, uh, the you know, the, way back exactly. But uh, yeah, the way we've seen it on our stages is a lot of times it will use small airbag systems on the wheels um, that can inflate and deflate quickly. Uh, linear actuators too are a lot uh, a lot cheaper than a full blown motion base. So those those are kind of some effects that we use. And for our final question of the hour, Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona says you mentioned that you graduated from college. What was your major, and how did what you learned there help you with the work you do now? So I went to college for um, uh, marketing. I graduated high school. I didn't didn't graduate college yet. I'm on a sabbatical uh, that started about 20 years ago. And uh, and uh, so one of the things that was helpful is, you know, when we started View, we realized because there was no brand name in virtual production, it was just uh, the Mandalorian was what everyone knew. Um, uh, we needed to make something that was short, sweet, and memorable. And so I think that was, um, uh, you know, where we had uh, kind of had the advantage of running a production company that for years had been making marketing videos for people to see what kind of worked and didn't. And um, and that's been a big priority for us is using that that marketing knowledge to uh, to kind of build the brand view. And Tim, we thank you so much for your time with us today. And we want to give you the final word and just to point out, everyone wants you back. All the comments are like, we want an uh, on-site meetup. So we'll see if we can coordinate that with our office hours community. But what's what's next for View Technologies? Oh, you know, just staying curious. If you do what you always done, you're going to get what you always got. So you just got to get out there and try something new. We'll be breaking things and making things. So I think that, uh, you know, when we look at what is a year from now look like, with AI, the world's going to be completely different. And we're excited about uh, what that world will be. Um, uh, the, the last thing I'll leave you with is uh, virtual production is, is really uh, just an illusion of the screen. But uh, seeing the world in, in a virtual world uh, through these um, uh, you know, multi-user simulations is essentially what they are. Uh, I think in the next year, all the hype about Web3, Metaverse, all of that um, will be a lot closer than it is today. And, and uh, having, um, you know, that technology learned today will be a big advantage for people tomorrow. So awesome. keep doing it. Thank you so much, Tim, uh, for being here. Everyone who's watching, the link is in the chat for Mukana, um, the our Mukana, Mukana community. And thank you for our producers for submitting all of your wonderful questions and our panelists for your responses. And to just share today, well, tomorrow, we're going to go through the Super Bowl ads and graphics. So you just got a taste during the first hour, but we're gonna, really going to dive in tomorrow during our second hour. And a reminder that the NAB planning meeting takes place today, later today, uh, 11 a.m. PST. So check the email for more details and to our production crew for which out with with out which this could not be possible thank you so much and it looks like we've gone 32,000 miles today and approximately 52,000 kilometers that's more than 294 million bananas for the rest of the schedule for the week head over to officehours.global and we'll see you in after hours
Bye. So Tim, this is when we start whispering. It's not virtual, but it's 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 us whispering, and that's how we close the show. Okay, great, great episode. Like, I have Tim that we're here. Yeah. Hey Tim, we gotta talk. I gotta I got a space in San Francisco, okay. north of San Francisco. Oh yes, let's do it. 60 or seventy by seventy by thirty with two uh, six thousand amps. Wow. It's not quite enough. Where, where in uh, North San Francisco? San Rafael. It's the old ILM stage. Oh, yes. Yes. It's got a model shop right across the parking lot. That makes me excited. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk. We'll talk. Okay. Thanks. It's wallet is burning. Yeah. Someone said so much. How long do we whisper? Until the team tells us that we're clear. So we're waiting for that any moment now.